I just want to, before we begin, alert you of the new food for the flock we have. These are intended to help give vision to our church, and I trust that you will take one. There should be some back. Maybe you've been, you've had some uh, just in your lap. Some of you have them. Don't read them now. Read them at the close of the service. That would be fine. I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. As you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of a scenario. Suppose you received a phone call from someone who told you this. Mr. Brandon, you don't know me, but I know you. I've seen you come and go, and sometimes I have followed you to know where you are going. I know all about your family. I know all about your house. And there are some things in your house that I want to have. And in fact, I'm going to come and take them from you. This isn't a joke. These aren't empty words. I'm coming to get those things from your house. Click. You get off the phone. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Well, I think you'd take some kind of precautions. What are some precautions that you would take? Let's have some feedback here. What are some precautions you'd take? Yeah, Preston, what would you do? Hide your stuff, stuff, okay? (laughs) It's a good precaution. Yeah, Tracy. Yeah, call the police. Maybe, hey, could you send, like, surveillance? I got this phone call, and uh, maybe you could come by. Yes, Seth. You can move. That would be good. But they know where you're going. Yes, Zachary. You can buy a gun. Exactly. That's very good. What else? Yes, Sarah. Lock the doors so they can't get in. Very good. Krissa. Yeah, fix our alarm system. Right? Or you get an alarm system. Right? You don't know that, okay? Get a big dog. That's right. Not a little one. A big one. Big fangs, right? Well, a bulldog. Right. What else would you do? Pray. Very good. Are there other things? I listed down a few maybe you didn't get to. I got to many of these. Maybe you put up some security lights around your house. Maybe put a fence around your house. Maybe put bars on your windows. Maybe change your locks. Maybe start a neighborhood watch program. Maybe buy another dog. Two dogs. Maybe... Ask your neighbors to keep watch for your house when you leave. Perhaps when you leave your house, maybe arrange for a house sitter. All these things you might do if you knew a thief was coming to get in your house. And the phone call of warning changed everything. In our text today, Jesus has given us a phone call. We have been going through in recent weeks and recent months... Recent weeks, this past month through Matthew chapter 24. We've come today in verse 32. I want to begin by looking at verses 42 through 44 because that's where it's going. That's where it's all headed. It's really the application, if you will. Jesus says, Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming... He would have been on the alert 
and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you too be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. You see, Jesus has given us a phone call. He has said, you may not know me, but I certainly know you. I've watched you come and go. I know all about you and your family, and I'm returning again. You don't know when, but I am returning. And it's soon, and it's certain. And when I come, it will be sudden. This is no joke. You will have to deal with me someday. And I ask you, how will you respond to knowing that the Son of Man is coming? And to know the Son of Man is coming soon? And to know that He is certainly coming. And when He comes like a thief, it will be sudden. Well, there are three lessons for us to learn today in order to be ready. And that's what Jesus begins to give us here in verse 32. I've entitled my message, Lessons to Learn from the Second Coming. These are lessons to learn. Jesus will give us here three lessons in which to learn from verses 32 to 41, which all lead up to verse 42 and help us to be ready and to be on the alert. The first lesson is this, verse 32 through 34, learn from the fig tree. Learn from the fig tree. Jesus said, now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see all these things, recognize that He is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. The fig tree is really very simple. Jesus is simply talking about a change in season. And He uses the fig tree as an example. And during the days of Jesus, the fig tree was a very common tree in Israel as it is today. Israel produces and exports many figs. And in those regions of the world, fig trees put forth their fruit for nine months. It's it's the three coldest months in which it lies dormant. So if you do your math a little bit, you figure out that the fig tree is one of the first plants that blossom. And when you know that when the fig tree puts forth its buds, you know it's early spring and the summer is near. In our culture today, we might say, when you see the snow melt, you know that summer is near. Or... When you see the tulips come up, you know that summer is near. My wife has done a a wonderful, lovely job just right in front of our walkway. Our tulips are blossoming up, and we know that summer is near. It's not here yet, Jake, okay? But it is here. It is coming. It is near. When you mow your lawn for the first time, you know that summer is near. It's coming. And that's the illustration. He just says, when you know and when you see the the branch becoming tender, and when you see the tree putting forth its leaves, you know that, that you should be anticipating summer because summer is coming. You're right on the door of that. The explanation of this parable comes in verse 33. Even so, you too, when you see all these things, recognize that He is near, right at the door. In other words, just as you look upon the change of season and can tell when summer is near, so you can look upon the situation in the world and realize when it is that the Lord is near. It's just that simple. That's what he says. As you can discern the fig tree, so also you ought to be able to discern the world. 
Now, some have tried to say the fig tree represents Israel, and that the budding of the nation of Israel in these last 50 years represents the coming of the end of the age. I think that stretches it a bit. I think that's too far. I think Jesus is only talking about it's a change in season. When the season's changing, you know that summer is coming. That's the illustration. That's the explanation. It's easy, but its application is, is difficult. Because you say, well, what exactly are the changes that Jesus is referring to? Right? We know about botany, but what about history? What about life? Well, Jesus says, when you look at these things, as it says in verse 33, you know that the summer is near. You know the Lord's near. And you say, what are those things? Well, He has spent many verses talking about what these things are. He has described what's going to take place before Jesus comes back. And we've seen those in recent weeks. I mean, beginning in verse 5, he said, many deceivers will come. That's one thing. A deceiver coming is like a a, a branch growing tender on a fig tree. He said that that there will be wars and kingdom of wars. So when you see wars, it's like leaves popping out on the fig tree. There would be disasters in verse 7, like earthquakes and famine. And that's only the beginning, Jesus said in verse 8. So these are just the little buds. And it begins to sprout further when persecution comes in verse 9. And when you see defections all over the place and people's love growing cold, you know that that signs are coming more. When you see more false prophets arise, as verse 11 says, you you, you know that the signs are coming. Verse 14 speaks about the the spread of evangelism across the world. You see when that's taking place, the, the, the tree is budding. Even in 15, the abomination of desolation... Just as Daniel prophesied, when that's coming, when you see that, you know that it's a sign of spring coming. And he continues on, just even, you know, the events of the tribulation, verse 21, the great tribulation coming, and verse 23 through 26, even more Christ, false Christ coming. And these are the things that take place before Jesus comes. In fact, even Jesus said this, look at verse 25, Behold, I've told you in advance... These are the things that Jesus would equate to the branch becoming tender and the leaves coming forth. The things preliminarily coming to before summer. Before summer comes. And here's the message of Jesus. When you see these things, then you know that Jesus is near right at the door. That's what verse 33 says. When you recognize these signs, you know that Jesus is near. And when you see these things, you ought to know the second coming is upon us. And when you see these things take place, you know that Jesus will soon come like lightning that flashes across the sky. And you know the day will soon come when the sun and moon will be darkened. And you know the day will come when you see the sign of the Son of Man appearing in the sky. And that angels soon will be sent forth to gather the elect. And when those things are happening, when the Son of Man appears, that's summertime, right? Everything else is leading up to that. And so, have these things taken place? Has the branch of the fig tree become tender? Has the fig tree begun to put forth its leaves? If they have, then summer is near and the coming of the Son of Man is near. And I believe, as I've told you the last four weeks, that these things have taken place and that these things are continuing to take place. And I stand on the authority of verse 34 to say this is the case. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. 
Now, many people stumble at verse 34 because they think that the, these things are referring to everything through verse 31. I don't think it is. I don't think that Jesus is talking with these things about everything that takes place. I think he's talking about the preliminary signs. That's exactly the parable in verse 33, right? When you see these things, what are these things? These are the, the, the coming signs, the, the, the branch becoming tender and the leaves beginning to sprout. Those are the things that he's talking about here in verse 34. And those are the things that will take place in the generation of Jesus' day. And we need to know that the coming of the Son of Man is close upon us. The coming is near. And so likewise, I think that Jesus is really referring to everything leading up to the coming of the Son of Man with verse 34. Not actually the coming of the Son of Man. I explained last week how I don't believe He's come yet. Verse 34, in the minds of some people... They've looked upon that as everything and even they have tried to cram verses 29, 30, and 31 into history and say that Jesus has come back. I don't think He has. But I don't think Jesus is talking about that. I think He's talking about the signs that show the nearness of His coming. And I think they've been fulfilled. Over last week, so I've, I've explained how I've, we've, there's always been deceivers. The days of Jesus, there were deceivers. The day after Jesus, there were deceivers. And there have always been deceivers. There's always been wars. There's always been disasters and famines and earthquakes. There's always been persecutions, defections. The gospel has continued to spread. The abomination of desolation took place when the Romans desecrated the temple. Great tribulation took place when, when um, the, the Romans were capturing Jerusalem. I described that for you. False Christs and false prophets have always been around. In fact, even as I was thinking about this week, I think even the false religions, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the, the Mormons, and the Catholics are putting forth a false Christ. Do you realize, when they elected a Pope, they elected the Vicar of Christ. You know what that means? That's like Christ on earth is who Pope Benedict XVI is. One day he's not Jesus, but the next day he's Jesus on earth. Is that a false Christ? Absolutely the, post, the, the Pope is. And, and they've had Popes for years. Since 500 A.D. there have been Popes. False Christs have always been around. These things took place after the days of Jesus. They have continued to take place. And I believe that the time is near when Jesus comes. As it says in verse 33, He is near. He's right at the door. The lesson of the fig tree is this. Summer's near. The Lord is near. This is the language the New Testament writers used. Paul said this, Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. James said, Be patient, strengthen your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is near. And behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Exact terminology that Jesus was talking about. It's near. He's right at the door. First Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Peter said, the end of all things is near. That's how we are to look. That's how we are to learn the lesson of the fig tree. We need to think of the coming of Jesus as being near. We ought not to think of it as being a long way off. We ought to think of it as being near. Now, one of the difficulties with this is that how can the coming of Jesus be soon if it's been longer than 2,000 years? Well, we'll answer that in our next point. 
For the coming of the Son of Man is near the celestial of the fig tree. We need to know it, anticipate it, almost as if the phone call you had from the thief, it's coming soon and near. You need to prepare. The second lesson from the second coming is we need to learn from Jesus. Let's learn from Jesus. Verses 35 and 36. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Two very curious verses, right back to back. On the one hand, you see Jesus being very certain of one thing. And on the other hand, you see Him being uncertain of something. Verse 35 speaks about how He's certain that His words will be accomplished. There's no doubt in the mind of Jesus. Everything that Jesus spoke will come true and His words will endure throughout all time. But in verse 36, there's uncertainty. He's uncertain regarding the timing of these things. He said He didn't know why, when they would take place. He said the angels didn't even know these things. Only the Father alone. And there's a lesson for us in each of these things. We need to learn from Jesus. In verse 35, we need to learn that these things are certain. Now, admittedly, there are things in this chapter that are difficult to believe. One is that issue of nearness. I mean, it has been 2,000 years. How can you equate soon or near with 2,000 years? Well, that very observation has led many to renounce the faith. Bertrand Russell wrote a little pamphlet entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. It was a lecture that he first gave that was massaged a little bit to put into print form. You can read it. I mean, it's only, it takes you 40 minutes to read it, 30 minutes to read it. And in that lecture, he made many points against Christianity. And at one point, he spoke about the defects in Christ's teaching. One of the defects was the fact that Jesus teached hell and that that can't go with his morality or whatever. Go figure that. He didn't understand that at all. But one of the things that he spoke against was the fact that Jesus was mistaken about his own return. He wrote this, Jesus certainly thought that his second coming would occur in clouds of glory before the death of all the people who were living at that time. In that respect, clearly he was not so wise as some other people have been. And he was certainly not superlatively wise. Thus, Russell refused to believe in Jesus because of this tension about Jesus saying that the signs have been fulfilled and the coming of the Son of Man is there. It is near. And yet, it's been 2,000 years. How do you answer that? I feel the tension of Russell's what Russell expressed. I mean, I understand the tension, how he could be near but wait 2,000 years. But you know what is very comforting is Peter anticipated this objection. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3. I read this in our time of Scripture reading and prayer. But it fits exactly this objection. 2 Peter chapter 3. Beginning in verse 3, Peter says this, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. And saying, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. It's almost as if Peter was addressing Bertrand Russell himself. Bertrand Russell would say, where is the promise of His coming? 
It's all been the same. He said that the Son of Man, and I quote, might say Bertrand Russell, is right at the door. Why hasn't he opened the door? Surely he was wrong. He's not coming back. The whole thing's a sham. Well, Peter went on to say, listen, it's not a sham. Everything hasn't been the same from the beginning. The world has been destroyed once with the flood. And as it says in verse 7, but the present heavens and earth by His Word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. It was by the Word of God that the world was created. Verse 5. It was by the Word of God that the earth was flooded. Verse 6. It was by the Word of God that the present world is being kept as it is. And it's by the Word of God that the present world will be destroyed someday by fire. It sounds a little bit, sounds a lot like the words of Jesus. Heaven and earth may pass away, but my Word will not pass away. Because it's by His Word that all these things happen. Jesus is coming back, it is certain. So you say, well, how do you account for the long delay? Here's how you account for it, is that our concept of soon isn't God's concept of soon. God's time frame is a bit different than our time frame. Look what He says in verse 8. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Right? When you say soon, or when you say near, what do you think about? You, you make a promise. Kids, if you make a promise to your parents and say, oh, you know, they say, oh, go clean your room. You say, I'll do that soon. What does that mean? Does that mean like right now? Or does that mean in a few hours or tomorrow or next month or next year? What does it mean? What does it mean? It means like right now or, or maybe in, in an hour. You know, after I get done with my project, something else you told me to do, then I'll go clean my room. But that is soon. That's our concept of soon. We don't think of soon as 2,000 years, but that's where God is different than we are. For us, eternity is 70 years. Right? My father is turning 70 soon. For us, eternity... You can say, maybe say amen to that. For us, eternity is 70 years, right? Amen. Soon is this year, this month, or tomorrow, or, or now. But for God, eternity is eternity. And so, soon for God can be 10,000 years. All eternity will make any delay no matter how long, seem as if it was soon. That's exactly what Peter said. The Lord one day is a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. So kids, your parents ask you to clean your room. And you say, soon. And you don't clean your room. And they say, why didn't you clean your room? You can say, I was just on God's time. <laughs> don't do that, okay? Parents might have some uh, clarification to do. In human time, not God's time. So I ask you, how long has the Lord delayed in coming? How long has He delayed? Two days. He's coming soon. He's waited two days because as the Lord, a thousand years is just one day. And the days of delay have a purpose, right? Days of delay are for repentance, right? Verse 9. 
The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. See, the return of Jesus has been delayed to give opportunity for repentance. See, it's a gracious and kind thing of God to wait. The teacher that pushes back the deadline is kind and gracious. And students will give praise to that teacher. Oh, thank you, teacher. The businessman that allows the shipping date to slip without penalty. Oh, you promised to ship it on that day. But you know what? I can take it then the next week. That businessman is kind and gracious, right? And and the one who missed the slipping date would say, Oh, thank you, thank you. The judge that delays the trial to give the defense more time to gather the evidence is kind and gracious to allow the defense to think more and to study more and to try to come up with some other reasons why their guilty party is innocent. That's a kind and gracious act of a judge. And so also when the sovereign of the universe delays his coming, it's kind and gracious. It gives people another day to repent. As the Lord of the universe has chosen not to judge the world with finality for 2,000 years, it is a declaration of His tremendous kindness and grace to us. And that ought to lead us all to repentance. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it's the kindness and forbearance and patience of God that leads you to repentance. So even I ask and challenge you all this morning, is the Lord kind to you? Has He been kind to you? Especially you children. Perhaps you children are holding on to sin and rather than just giving it all to Christ. Has He been patient with you over the years? Is today the day where you need to repent and bow your knee to Christ who will make up any insufficiency you have, which is total? who will sanctify you and purify you completely blameless the day of Christ Jesus. And Christ is your only hope. You need to repent. Jesus is coming back. Of this there's no doubt. Heaven and earth will pass away, but His words will not pass away. And He will return because He said that He will return. We'll turn back to Matthew chapter 24. His return is certain, but also... The time is unknowable. We don't know when He's coming. Jesus said, verse 36, Of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven. We don't know the day in which Jesus will return. He Himself didn't know. Now, this causes theologians all type of speculation in terms of the deity of Christ. Some will say, oh, well, He certainly couldn't have been God because God knows all things, but Jesus here even confesses His ignorance. And I simply say... That's not a problem. His ignorance was wrapped up in the mysteries of the Incarnation. When God became a man, certain limitations were placed upon Him. They had to be. I mean, Jesus wasn't omnipresent, was He? He had a flesh and a body. He was contained to one location as a man. The Bible says that God is spirit. But Jesus came and had a body. It defined Him locally. Jesus wasn't immortal as a human being. Like every other man, he was capable of dying. Indeed, he did die. He died a real death. 
Jesus was tempted in the flesh. It's clear. Matthew 4 says that he was tempted by the devil. But James 1 says that God cannot be tempted by evil. It's the mysteries of the incarnation. There were things that were true about Jesus in flesh that were not true about Jesus when he was God in eternity past. And one of these things is that Jesus wasn't omniscient. He didn't know all things. Not only did Jesus not know, nor did the angels in heaven know. Nor do I believe the angels in heaven know right now. Nor do any of the saints who have died and gone to be with Christ, do they know either. It's God the Father who alone has set the day of the return of the Son of Man. That Jesus will return someday is certain. When He will return is uncertain. That's not that it's impossible to know. It's not that it's difficult to know. It's that God the Father has chosen to keep it secret. You all know about this? Parents, you know about this? Maybe you're having some sort of special surprise for your kids. Maybe taking them away on a weekend. Maybe having a special birthday present. Maybe doing this. And what have you done? You've kept secret about it. You've kept it from the children. Why? You've just wanted to. Or teachers do that also sometimes. Perhaps they're planning some kind of end of the year party. And they don't tell their students. Maybe there's flunk day, right? And uh, there's going to be some flunk day, but they've kept it quiet. By the way, I've had many comments about flunk day. You know, people coming around. I've had kids wanting to do flunk day with their parents. If you missed last week, you need to get last week. But it's, it's a secret. Why? Because. Why has the Father kept the return of the Son of Man, the date, silent? Why has He kept silent about those things? We don't know. But we need to trust that God the Father has chosen to keep it hidden for us and we need to be content in that. There is some wisdom in that. And I, I, I can think of the wisdom. I can think of the wisdom. If we knew the day which is coming back, the exact day and the exact hour, many people would delay the repentance until a day. They wouldn't live in the expectation of His coming. There would be different living. But the Lord has created us. He wants us to live by faith. wants us to know that He is coming back. But a day is uncertain. And we ought not to be like the child who badgers his parents, begging, what, what am I getting for Christmas? What am I getting for Christmas? We ought not to be like that. We ought not to be like the student who, who badgers the professor, the, the teacher about the special event. You said a special event's coming. When is it? When is it? When is it? When is it? We ought not to be like Delilah who bothered Samson in trying to figure out exactly what the source of his strength well was. If God has chosen to keep such knowledge hidden from us, we ought to be content that it's for our good. And if people would learn this fact, there would be far fewer eschatological preachers leading others astray, right? I mean, there's something in us that wants to know, and these eschatological prophecy teachers are willing to tell us what we want to know, whether it's true or not. God has revealed to us exactly what we ought to know, nothing more, nothing less. And the exact time when He returns is not part of the program. So don't seek it. And certainly don't follow anyone who claims to know when the Lord is coming back. Don't follow anyone who ever claimed to know when they were coming back. Because every person who's ever set a date for the return of Christ has been wrong. Every single one. Dates have been set throughout all history. Christ is coming back. Christ is coming back. Christ is coming back. Christ is coming back this date. And you know what? Every single one of those guys has always been wrong. 
In fact, I would go so far as to say this, that if you hear of anybody setting a date for Christ's return, you know that that's the day He won't return, right? Because would He return, it would have demonstrated that person knew when He returned. So you hear a date when Jesus will return? No, that's not going to be the date. And I just say, be content in the knowledge that you have. Well, here are the lessons we need to learn. Learn from the fig tree. His return is soon. Learn from Jesus that His return is certain. It's also unknowable in terms of the time. Our third lesson regarding the return of Christ, we need to learn from Noah. We need to learn from Noah. We're going to learn here that His return is sudden. It's coming quick. Verse 37, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there shall be two men in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. Jesus, for this third lesson, takes us back into the book of Genesis to illustrate the story. He told about Noah. I trust many of you are familiar with Noah. He was a man who lived on the face of the earth when corruption had spread far and deep. The Lord looked down upon the sons of men and He saw that... There, that uh, Genesis 6.5 He saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. Massive sin across the world. Massive massive sin within every single man. And the Lord said He was sorry that He made man on the earth and resolved to destroy the whole earth. But one man, and we don't know why, one man, Genesis 6 verse 8, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so the Lord warned him and told him. Told him He was about to destroy the whole earth with a flood. And so Noah, God told, God told Noah to build an ark that would preserve your family and a bunch of animals. When you put all the biblical evidence together, the best I can surmise is that Noah spent 120 years building this ark. There weren't any power tools around to help him. No Lowe's or Home Depot from which he can go and purchase the building material. He had to make everything from scratch. He made it from scratch. All done with hand and manual tools. I think it took him 120 years. And while he was building, he was preaching. Because Peter called him a preacher of righteousness. And I can only envision that that Noah would have got a lot of attention in this world to build this huge box. It looked like a big crate that he was building this. People saying, what is that about? And he had an opportunity to preach forth righteousness. Preach forth that, that you're sinning. And God is displeased with your sin and He's going to destroy the world. And this ark is going to take me and my family and some animals to safety. But we know that none of them turned from their wicked ways. None of them. Such was the extent of depravity upon the earth. The Lord told Noah, You alone I have seen to be righteous before me. And while Noah was building his ark, life was going on as normal. Jesus said that before the flood, they're eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. It's just describing typical life. None of these things that Jesus mentioned are particularly sinful. Right? Their sin, if anything, was to ignore the words of Noah. And then continue on their wickedness. But these are just re- explaining the realities of life. 
eating, drinking, sustaining our bodies, marrying and giving in marriage to propagate the human race. And they did that. Life was normal until, Jesus says, the day that Noah entered the ark. And on the day that Noah entered the ark, he and his wife and his three sons and their three wives, eight people in all, shut the door with a bunch of animals. On that very day, the floodgates opened and it rained 40 days and 40 nights. Those in the ark, those eight, were saved. Everyone else destroyed. And the point of the story is really clear. They didn't understand that a flood was coming. Right? Verse 39. They didn't understand until the flood came and took them away. And they made no preparations for that day. They heard the warnings from the mouth of Noah, but certainly they didn't believe the flood was coming. And Jesus said this, So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And I think the point of Jesus' story here is that it's a sudden return. Life will be going on as normal. Warnings will be sounding, but life will continue on as normal. But just as the day came quickly back then, the day will come now. And I've heard some say, and I think there might be some justification to this, that no, before the Lord comes back, there's going to be turmoil and tribulation and massive distress. I think it's going to be like the day of Noah. Certainly there'll be distress. But I think many things will continue on just as it is. And He's going to come back suddenly. There will be tribulation because it says in verse 29, after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. He's going to come. But I'm not sure that it's going to be so distressing. I think it's going to be like in the days of Noah. Eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. Certainly there's distress, but it's okay. And then verse 40 through 41. Picture life again is just going on as normal. You've got men working in the field. You have women grinding at the mill. When Jesus returns, one is saved and the other is destroyed. Listen to what it says. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Now there's some discussion here as to whether the one taken is taken in judgment or whether they're taken away in safety. And there's been many pages wasted over that issue. Whether they're they taken away in judgment or they take taken away you know, to, to be with the angels. I think it, it doesn't matter. One is going to be destroyed and one is going to be saved. Which way? We don't really know. But the point is that when the Son of Man comes... It's going to be two people in the earth. One will be destroyed and the other will be rescued. The lightning is going to flash across the sky. All will look up and see the Son of Man is returning and there's going to be a division among the sons of men. And the point is this. When the Lord comes back, there's no time to repent. I mean, I, I can just picture the, the ark beginning to, to float and to you know begin to topple a little bit. And the people on the outside swimming on some kind of branch nang- banging on the door and saying, let us in, let us in, we're sorry, we're sorry. I'm not sure that happened. It's too late. It's too late. When the Lord comes back, there isn't going to be time to repent. The game will be over. It will all be decided. You will either be with God and been taken up with the angels or you will be soon destroyed. Those in Noah's day drowned. Those in the future will burn. We'll learn the lesson from the fig tree is coming as soon. Learn the lesson from Jesus is coming is certain. And learn the lesson from Noah, his coming is sudden.
And in all of these, we end with my introduction. You need to be ready. He says in verse 42, Therefore be on the alert. You don't know when the day that the Lord is coming. If a thief were coming and you knew it, you would prepare. You'd prepare with all those things that we talked about. But the Lord is coming. And you need to respond. And you need to be ready. Verse 44, For this reason you be ready too. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think that He will. And so I ask you as a conclusion of this message, how will you respond from these lessons? You think of the fig tree. Do you think that the Lord is near? That the time is ripe? We learn from Jesus and believe the words of Jesus to be true. Not being swayed away by arguments like Bertrand Russell would put up. Or do you believe that just as in the days of Noah, the, the destruction is going to come quickly? If you do, you will be ready. And my prayer and heart's desire for us at Rock Valley Bible Church is that we would be ready. And we'd look for and long for His coming, which is soon and certain and sudden. Let's pray together. Lord, I have done my best. I confess feeble to expound Your Word and to press it into our hearts and the consciences of all of us around. I pray that You would use Your Word, which won't ever pass away, to penetrate deep within our hearts. That we would look at our lives and ask ourselves whether we are ready or not. Whether we have made preparations for the thief that comes. Whether we have prepared our hearts for the glorious coming of the Lord. I pray you'd search our hearts and find our hearts thrilled with the prospect of your coming. May it stir within us a a desire to eagerly seek the soon return of Christ and to believe and trust with certainty of your words and to realize that when it comes, it will come suddenly. And today is the day of repentance. And I pray, O Lord, that You would find us humble and contrite of spirit and trembling at Your Word, that we would be ready on that day. We pray in the wonderful name of Christ. Amen.